Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A Living History Production I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for another episode of Battle Walks where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. We've been all over the place recently. We've done battlefields from the First World War, the Second World War, a whole host of other battlefields. We even went to the Pacific and walked Guadalcanal for our second time. Uh, but we're back to one of our favourite spots. We're back on the Somme and we're talking about the 1st of July 1916. Joining me to discuss it as always is Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Thanks, Matt. Good to be back again. I'm going to ask a question right at the start, mate. We're doing the um, the area around the village of Serre, that's S-E-R-R-E, uh, on the, from the first day of the Somme. What is it about the 1st of July, 1916? I mean, you, I heard you describe it as effectively Britain's equivalent of Anzac Day, and I certainly see that as an Australian. I see that connection. But what is it about the 1st of July that keeps us coming back? Well, uh, it's to do with the PALS battalions, really, I would say. It, it's a, it's the horrific casualties, you know, those the, that well-known figure, 60,000 casualties, 20,000 of, of whom uh, died uh, on on that day. Um, so it's the worst day in British military history. But it it's more than that. It's this, uh, the PALS battalions, the raising of the PALS battalions, the... Um, this concept uh, uh, of regions and towns raising men to go off to fight. It's an old system. It's something that was tried and tested right away from the Napoleonic Wars. 
um, and, and earlier in fact, but Napoleonic wars, wars particularly for the defence of Britain. So these men were raised by the, the great and good of the cities of, uh, well, I was going to say of the north, but it's actually all over the UK, but, but predominantly where big conurbations where there are lots of people. Um, and you know, that, that pointing finger, your country needs you, well, it was then your town needs you, your city needs you. Join up and join one of the PALS battalions, the Chums battalions, uh, and go off and fight this this threat to the to, to Britain. So, in fact, they're not going to be used for defending the coast. They're not going to be used for uh, for defending the country itself. They're going to be sent abroad uh, to uh, to uh, try and eject the Germans from uh, the occupied areas of, of France and Belgium. Oh, and elsewhere. Of course, they will go elsewhere. In fact, to the first place most of the PALS battalions went, of course, was Egypt, actually. Uh, they're, they're defending the uh, the Suez Canal. And Gallipoli, of course. PALS yeah, and Gallipoli. And Gallipoli. Actually, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do indeed. Yeah. So it's more than just the 1st of July, but that's obviously what we remember them for. Um, let's. We, we, we've done several podcasts about the 1st of July, and I, th- I think everyone knows the story fairly well. So let's not do the whole thing, but tell us specifically what happened in this sector of the line. Firstly, where in the line are we? Because I'm always fascinated with the 1st of July is that we can break it into different sectors and a a huge variety of things went on in each sector. Tell us about this sector and where exactly we are and what happened here. Okay, well, we're near to the village of Serre. Matt's already spelt it, S-E-R-R-E, so I'll just reiterate. Um, It's towards the left of the the whole frontage that's going to be attacked on the 1st of July. There's only a little bit, we go a little bit further to the left. I'm sorry, I'm giving directions, and I always do, and and I think most guys and people talking about the war, we're talking, looking from a British perspective, looking towards the German lines. So we're looking on the left of the line, there's just a diversionary attack beyond but this is this is one of the more crucial spots but it's also where we uh, we, we cluster and this is why it's really remembered a, a lot of the pals battalions the 31st division which is the one that's going to fight here was totally made up from but uh, battalions raised by cities and towns so i think before we go any further it's just worthwhile looking at the 31st division um there are three brigades in a division and within each brigade, there are four battalions. So, um, and a battalion's a thousand men. So, just looking at the 92nd Brigade, well, that's my hometown. That's Hull. So, there's the Hull commercial, uh, commercials, the Hull tradesmen, the Hull sportsmen, and the Hull tothers. Uh, tothers being uh, anybody else. So, oh, uh, uh, you, uh, in the old. Uh, you say Hull, tothers uh, as in the others. Tothers, the others. Oh, yeah. I see. 93rd Brigade, uh, Leeds Pals, uh, 1st Bradford Pals, 2nd Bradford Pals and the Durham Pals, 94th Brigade, Sheffield City Battalion, the 1st Barnsley Pals, 2nd Barnsley Pals and the Accrington Pals. Uh, um, so, And then the Pioneer Battalion was the Leeds Miners Battalion. So these are uh, predominantly from the north of England uh, and um, in fact they're all from the north of England and uh, totally a, a PALS uh, division, the 31st Division. And so that's the area that we're in. This is where they're going to fight. Um, interestingly, not 
not to a great extent, the 92nd Brigade, the whole battalions, they were held back in reserve. Um, so they do get to take casualties because machine gunners were needed, they were using carrying parties, they were in support. Um, so there still are casualties within the, uh, the, the hull pals, but mainly it's the other two uh, brigades, the 93rd and the 94th, which will take the very heavy casualties of that day, the 1st of July. So that's where we are. Um, and the reason we're here really, and this was the original reason to do the podcast, was just to discuss uh, about something called the Sheffield Memorial Park, sometimes just the Sheffield Park. And uh, it, it it was created to commemorate the men from Sheffield, but over the years it now commemorates um, all of which I've just said, basically the men of the PALS battalions of the 31st Division who fought here. So that's what we're really here to see and to talk about is this Sheffield Memorial Park that was uh, created here. It's a pretty special area, Pete. It was one of the first sites I visited on the Somme battlefield, um, probably in the first day of visiting the Somme battlefields. And it just it just struck me because this is... I, th- I think when we walk the Somme battlefields, it's not all doom and gloom. It, obviously, there's a large amount of that, but not everything is just men being wiped out by machine guns on that first day. But it certainly is here, isn't it? I mean, this is a, this yeah. is a focal point of that men marching towards machine guns and getting completely mowed down and, and there's something that hangs in the air here it's a it's a it's a special place it's a sad place and i i think more so than anywhere on the Somme battlefields i felt that connection with that just that loss of the first morning i think to me as well it it, it is a loss for the whole of of this period uh the french had fought here in uh, 1915 and just to put that in perspective the French fighting in the same area in 1915 had greater casualties than all of the British attacks in 1916. So, so it's not just just the the British army that will have problems in this sector. The French had also had terrible problems in 1915. So here we are in 1916. Really, two only two attacks in this area. First of July, total disaster. 13th of November, same disaster in this area. In other areas, the 13th was a successful day. But here, 13th of November is equally as bad here as it had been on the 1st of July. So you have two major attacks. Uh, both. So there is no success. And in fact, the Germans fell back to the Hindenburg line from Serre. Serre was never captured by a feat of arms. Um, so there's nothing here that we can commemorate other than the loss of the men who fought here. And it's not as busy as places like the Newfoundland Memorial Park. I mean, you can walk through trenches at the Newfoundland Park that were, you know, the, the scene of so much devastation on that first day. Um, but it's it's preserved, it's manicured, It's there's always other people there, there's guides that show you around. This is not like that at all. This is just a, it feels like a little far flung, isolated corner of the battlefields. You've usually got the place to yourself. It's, 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 yeah. it's a really special spot. I really enjoy going here. It's actually become even more, well, special in a way, I suppose, really, because it is quieter than it used to be. Because in the old days, you could drive your car right up to the Sheffield Memorial Park and just park outside and walk in. Now, in recent years, that's not become, um, it's not become accessible any longer. So you can no longer drive there. So actually, for a lot of people, and we know this, this problem all the time, Matt, is that, you know, in, in, on a battlefield tour, when you're, you're really tight on time, to park a coach up as we are going to, we're going to park, uh, just outside of the site. Um, and 
walk in. It's too far. It's too far for most people unless they've allocated a lot of time here. And that would be really half a day almost to allocate to walk in, do some of the stories and walk out or at least a couple of hours. Uh, It's too long for most of the people who are on their first visit whistling round the battlefield. Um, It's really better for walking tours for people who really do want to do a bit of walking. Um, And um, uh, and that's what we're going to do. So we're going to park outside at uh, one of the cemeteries on the on the main road, which is uh, um, number one, so Sir uh, Road number one cemetery, um, and that's the, the best place to park and the safest place to park, and then to walk into the site from there. Well, let's talk about that cemetery, Pete. We're outside the cemetery. There's a, there's a whole string of cemeteries in this area. I mean, reflective of yeah. of what went on on the ground. So let's let's talk about Sir Road number one. It's a big old cemetery. Yeah, well, I think to understand the cemeteries, uh, because we're going to, all of them are the same uh, effectively, none of these cemeteries could be created uh, during the time when the fighting was close. So that really is is 1916. You could not, uh, you could not almost bury anybody at that time here because we're, we've got no success. And one of the the criteria of burying your dead is being able to get to them to to bury them in safety. I've said this many times, and I do on the tours, that uh, you do not risk your living to bury your dead. So the men here lay in in no man's land and could not be recovered until after that second attack. So the 13th of November, another attack, and the dead are still lying there. And then the Germans decide in that spring uh, or uh, late winter, early spring of 1917, they're going to fall back to the Hindenburg line. And that's when we get the battlefield clearances or the start of the battlefield clearances and uh, the, 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 the building of these small cemeteries. So these cemeteries were built. The most of them were created initially uh, in that period in 1907, uh, 1917, in the spring of 1917. Uh, and they were by Vicor. It was Vicor. Um, that uh, Forcor that um, had uh, that did uh, uh, created most of these cemeteries, the the initial uh, burials. Um, sorry, Five Core, isn't it? Me, Five Core, um, who created these uh, initial uh, cemeteries and initial burials. Um, and so I often wonder about these people that did this. What a what a truly terrible job to have to go and and clear the battlefield of the dead. That right the way. And this, remember, this is the spring of 1917, and these guys uh, died uh, from the fe- uh, from the first of July of 1916. But even more horrifically, they started at the same time to build a a, a French cemetery because they started finding French dead and they didn't know what to do with them. So they started also started to create a French cemetery, and we'll talk about that as the last the French French cemetery is going to be our last port of call uh, once we've uh, once we've uh, done this little walk. Pete, just so, as for, a just yeah. a philosophical question about that. I mean, aside from the ghastliness of, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine the men, the first men to cross that ground that is still littered with hundreds of bodies from you know best part of a year before, um, and then men are tasked with okay, go and clear those. You know, we use that term clear the battlefield we'll go and pick up the corpses and the skeletons and go and put them in in graves was there a uh, the philosophical question is was there an was there a connection with the first of july in the same way we have now did men who were fighting in 1917 look back on the first of july as this huge battle and you know if they hadn't participated in it themselves did they look back the same way that Australian troops look back at the original Anzacs that had served at Gallipoli. Was there this feeling that there had been this huge event on the 1st of July 1916? 
pregnant pause? And that's because that's a very good question and one that I don't actually know that I can answer accurately. My gut reaction would be no, because there's so much horror going on from the 1st of July onwards. We have, uh, throughout the whole of the Battle of the Somme, we have, you know, this Battle of the Somme is broken down to lots of kind of individual actions, which in some cases, not, not, obviously not as terrible as that one day, but for the men that took part in some of the other battles, would be, they would have the feeling that they just fought in something very similar. And in, in most cases, they had just a smaller action. Um, so, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, would they? It certainly isn't like Gallipoli. It's not that feeling of the, that they've just gone something, you know, from the following year, they are commemorating They are commemorating the landings at Gallipoli. You know, in, in, in 20... Sorry, in two, uh, in 1916, they are c- commemorating the landings, uh, from 1915. So, you no, know, in 1917, are they commemorating and remembering what happened on the 1st of July? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think it's something that develops at, as perhaps later on during the war or perhaps just after the war, but I'm not sure that there would be this kind of, well, we need to commemorate this 1st of July thing and remember this 1st of July. Because I don't think we could see an end. There is no end, and so you don't commemorate and look back to a disaster when you're when you're trying to move forward. So yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain that that would be the feeling. We cannot commemorate this. It's a terrible thing. If it had been a success, when we probably would. Um, but I think that the 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 terrible deaths and what had happened um, meant that it, it isn't going to be commemorated and remembered until until after the war. Interestingly, so nicely that's a kind of a nice link. Is this cemetery, Say Road Number One, uh, is was used uh, by the survivors of the Bradford Pals? Had an annual service here on the first of July every year. Um, they came back uh, every year, even uh, obviously during the Second World War they couldn't come, but immediately the Second World War finished, they also came back again in the in the fifties. So this this location that we're now standing in, um, Say Road Number One, was a a location for one of those commemorative uh, events that took place all over the battlefield, commemorating that that terrible loss of the uh, of the Bradford Pals on the first of July. So yes, there will be eventually a commemorating of this of this, but I don't think that in nineteen seventeen that that they would be. They would be commemorating it or remembering it to that degree as, as the soldiers, you know, the Anzacs wearing that brass A on their arms to show that they'd served on the peninsula. Um, no, they didn't wear something on their arms to say they'd fought during, uh, on the 1st of July. As you were talking, something I realised as well, um, you know, that makes a lot, a lot of sense is that it wasn't until after the war that we started putting everything in these neat boxes. I mean, if you were mm. a soldier that turned up in, even if you turned up very late in 1916, and so therefore found yourself here during the German withdrawal, you'd still be in the thick of the Somme fighting. You would, he wouldn't be, you know. Yeah. That was the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and it's still going on. You know, effectively, yeah. I think from the soldiers in the front line, winter men are slowing down of the fighting, but they, I, I don't think they, you know, they were still on the Somme front uh, until the Germans withdrew and that sort of next phase on the Hindenburg line began. It was pro- all, probably all just intertwined in their mind. So, yeah, I think I've answered my own question there. But, no, I, I think it's fascinating to know what the attitudes of new men would be to those those victims of that first day. But, as you say, probably nothing. Probably just yeah, just one of the thousands of poor buggers that I've seen dead on the battlefield. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be remembered by the men 
themselves and people like the Bradford Pals, you know, because that would be you know, two years in the in the making and you know, and and a couple of hours in their dis, uh, in their destruction. You know, it's, uh, and, and so for the men that were there, the Bradford Pals that had taken part in the attack, you know, to look around uh, uh, for the rest of the war at their battalion and realise that it no longer is the Bradford Pals, because of course that's going to be one of the issues. There aren't the reserves to renew these these Pals battalions with more Pals. So once they'd, they'd lost, uh, you know, over half of their strength, there there isn't another, you know, another three or four hundred men from Bradford who were ready to, to fill those gaps. So they're filled from people from other towns and other places and other areas of Britain. So they immediately start to lose that Pals feel. And so it's it's literally, it's the training of them and that camaraderie that is lost in that first day um, uh, for, for those battalions that took heavy casualties. Well, tell us about this cemetery in more detail. So, Sea Road Number One, um, yep. as we said, a big cemetery created, obviously, from clearing the battlefields. So, tell us all about yeah. it. So, what we've got to start off with is that we've got a, a period, two periods of clearances, I suppose, and that's always what you have to remember. The Germans uh, fall back to the Hindenburg Line, and uh, we we can uh, start to clear the battlefields, uh, and then the Germans will be back again here. They retook all of this area. This is getting to the extent of the area that they took. They're not going to be that much further away from here, um, but they did retake this area, uh, and the fighting then crossed over these uh, these little cemeteries, and then what we get is the fight. Final push and, the, and they're pushed away and, and to the end of the uh, end of the war on the armistice, and then we can clear the battlefields again. So there are two clearances. There's the gathering of the bodies straight after the fighting, or a year after the fighting, and then there's the gathering of the bodies after the war. So we end up here with two thousand four hundred and twenty-six burials here, uh, of which uh, just under seven hundred are identified. Now that is very obviously what is known as a, a concentration cemetery because we get these enormous numbers of unknowns and that's because a lot of these guys are not going to be recovered till after the war so uh, some of the men who were not recovered uh, in uh, from the 1st of July and they didn't have the time to do very careful kind of recoveries almost almost arm in arm crossing the battlefields looking for human remains which is what they will do in 19, uh, 1918 1919 here it's just carefully picking people up that they can immediately see. So they miss lots and lots of, of, of people and will gather them in. But by then, any hope of uh, of identifying them. Now, there's, there's a couple of... It's. I don't like this to a certain extent. We pick on several stories that are well-known stories of of men from this first of July, and and Private Horace uh, Ills is uh, is one of them, uh, and he's a sixteen-year-old uh, and a well-documented sixteen-year-old. That there's probably a lot of sixteen-year-olds that have their ages of sixteen or less who are actually not sixteen; they're older. But he most definitely is sixteen. Uh, and why he was remembered is in the uh, the Leeds Pals, the 15th Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, and that's the, the Leeds Pals. He's buried here, so he has a grave. Um, on his headstone, every now a thoughts that is, uh, I think it was, uh, it's not his mother, it's his sister, I think, that, that um, did that uh, uh, epitaph on his headstone. But the sad aspect of, of him and his death at the age of 16 a, he's underage, he shouldn't have been there at all. But B, the reason why he ends up here is because he was handed a white feather on a tram in Leeds. Uh, and the white feather was a sign of cowards. So in other words, uh, some, some young woman saw this, uh, not realising his age, saw this uh, 16-year-old and gave him a white feather and effectively saying, why aren't you in uniform, why aren't you fighting? And so he was shamed into joining up at, at, at 16. 
Um, so, and there's a, a, a terrible aspect of the family, uh, and specifically his sister Flory, uh, trying to, to persuade him to tell people uh, that he's that he's actually uh, sixteen. And so we, we have a, a letter survives, and I'm just a little extract from it. For goodness' sake, Horace, tell them how old you are. I'm sure they will send you back if they know you are only sixteen. You have seen quite enough, and that's because he'd already been wounded. You have seen quite enough. Uh, now just chuck it up and try and get back. You won't fare no worse for it. If you don't do it now, you will come back in bits, and we won't uh, want the whole of you. Well, sadly, that uh, uh, letter was returned to her unopened and marked killed in action. Uh, it never uh, got to him. He was already dead by the time that letter had got uh, had got to him. So a terrible story of a, of a young boy being, uh, uh, I suppose, peer pressured, shamed in, into enlisting underage, and then losing his life on the on the first of, of July. He's well remembered. When you go up to his grave, there's normally poppy wreaths there and crosses and things. So so he, he is well remembered, which which is good. Um, but I try and just pick some of the unknown graves when I'm up uh, in this area to uh, to lay poppy reefs on and remember some of those that uh, that we know are here but we don't know where they are here uh, or who they are um one of the other ones that i i, I normally t- uh, chat about um is second lieutenant major now he's not a major as in the rank that's his believe it or not that's his first name so second lieutenant major william booth again of the 15th battalion the leeds pals um, and he was a professional cricketer um, for both England and played for both England and Yorkshire. And he died on the first of July, and he's also also buried here. Now you can keep on doing this in the in these cemeteries because so many people have become fascinated by those a that were in the Pals battalions and b that died on the first of July. There's an awful lot of research you can do. It's one of the things that really caught my imagination when I was a young man um, a, a series of books started coming out there were there were it, it, it really fires your imagination people started looking at the rules of honor and their in their churches and on their war memorials and you can see these family names over and over again and of course that's one of the problems of this this whole system of, of trying to persuade people to join a pals battalion uh, because it attracted families it attracted uh, attracted factories it attracted sports clubs it attracted uh, um, uh, groups of people they just wanted to serve uh, to, together and sadly here they die together as well we should remember as well for Australian and New Zealand um, listeners to this podcast, Canadians as well to some extent, um, the PALS battalion system also existed in those countries. Um, but if we look at the example of Australia uh, compared to the UK, the geographic areas were much larger simply because of the nature of the geography of Australia. So even though it was usually men from the same district, it didn't quite have that same feeling as the you know the cramped sort of northern areas of England where uh, where they were drawing people from, so there wouldn't have quite been that same experience of I you know I know half the people in this battalion, um, but still the same concept that men were drawn from the same local areas. Yeah, uh, and a clever concept. I mean, it was a it was a clever idea. As we're going to see, we're going to learn some more stories as we, as we go along. It was a clever idea. It did make people uh, people enlist, and uh, and just as a matter of interest, it, it wasn't just the infantry. There were also uh, artillery units and, um, and and supply columns uh, uh, that joined up as as pals as well. They're just not pals battalions, as in the sense of infantry, but they also joined up to do other jobs, to to fire guns and to and to uh, to bring the supplies. Um, and in fact, my grandfather he enjoyed he, he enlisted 
in one of the hull-raised units, and it was an ammunition column designed to supply ammunition to these battalions of the 31st Division, but um, uh, with, the, with the artillery as well, so 31st Division artillery. Well, they were pulled out because they were ready ahead of the infantry, and they went to the Western Front before the, uh, the 31st Division, so he ends up in a different division, but he, was, uh, he, he would have been destined to have been with the 31st Division here on the Somme. Um, he was on the Somme, but not with the 31st. So we're going to uh, leave um, Sir Road uh, Number 1 Cemetery and we're going to go past, uh, around the corner, so left-hand turn, past the farm on the left-hand side. Um, now, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning uh, here. It's well worth just, just mentioning. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you that, for this, Pete. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I mean, we have to mention it because so just here, the, there is a, a farmer here who lives in the farm here. Sadly, is um, is not quite compass mentis. I think would be a good way of putting it. And he does get a little bit uptight sometimes, mainly with people trying to drive cars up here which you used to be able to do um so he'll sometimes come out and have a chat with you i would just ignore him and carry on uh, on on walking i haven't been for a couple of months so i'm not quite sure what his state of mind is i know that he's uh, he has been several times warned by uh, by the gendarmerie and etc etc um anyway so but just worth uh, worthwhile mentioning so past the uh, the farm there now i'm just going to go off on one of my tangents here um I knew the farmer quite well at one time because, oddly, he had uh, a, a little area where he kept goats. Uh, it penned in an area. And one morning he went out and his goats had disappeared. And where they'd gone, they'd gone down the damn great hole which had opened up in the middle of his uh, of his goat pen. Um, and so, in other words, like a big sinkhole. And um, it was investigated by a group called the Durand Group, who then cleared it out and found the entrance to a German shaft that was going down. And I was involved in in actually excavating it. So uh, halfway down this shaft with a, a bucket on a, on ropes and passing them up uh, uh, behind us and clearing out the shaft until we got to the bottom with the hub. Uh, this is a, a German position, so it's a German frontline position with a hope that it would lead to some kind of subterranean... Um, well, they re- what they really hoped, it was going to be a subway. That it was going to be a route that the Germans had used to get to the front line. It wasn't, in fact. It was a listening post. So it was going to be a listening post. Um, it had been used. We found graffiti at the bottom and a regimental badge scratched into, the, into a, a chalk face, but nothing else. Um, I just had one little thing. This was the last time I ever went underground because I got myself stuck at the bottom of it, and um, and it, and it was a little scary. And so I've never been down one of these tunnels since. So that was my last experience of doing some tunnel exp- uh, uh, explanation. It's a much longer story than that, but I won't bore you all by telling me. But put it this way: it was a little scary. Anyway, so, I've heard um, uh, I've heard this story uh, with beer in hand, Pete. It is a terrifying story. It's good, a good, good reminder to people not to go exploring these tunnels. You do find them from time to time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't go in yeah. them. <laughs> uh, I was professionally geared up here with professional uh, um, uh, tunnel uh, uh, explorers, the Durand Group, very, very professional. Um, in fact, engineering officers running it. I don't know if it still exists. I presume it does. Um, and um, yeah. So uh, just a little by the by, Je- uh, so we can see very clearly we're on the German front line. So did he get his goats the- back, Pete? He did, did, yes, he did, yeah. <laughs> now, you've, you've set me off now. One of the little issues here was, of course, that the farmer here believed that all of the work we'd done would then open up to the public and this would become some kind of tourist attraction that he could make a fortune from. And sadly, that's not to be. All that happened was it was capped and covered over and finished. Uh, and everybody left. And he was just gobsmacked that all this work for weeks and weeks and we just left. 
<laughs> so yeah, that was that was the start of him uh, becoming a little unstable, I think. But anyway, so um, onwards, and so we're going to go a little bit further, and we're heading now into uh, into no man's land. So this is taking us into no man's land, and the next cemetery is um, is Sarah Road Cemetery number number three. This is a, a very small uh, little cemetery, eighty-one graves. Um, four special memorials. These are to men known to be buried within the confines of, of the cemetery. Uh, and sadly, only 36 um, uh, of, the, of the burials here are known burials. Um, this is the area where actually the, uh, the Leeds Pals attack. So this is on their attack route, uh, the Leeds Pals. Um, and uh, they had 528 casualties. So I'll try and give the, the casualties for the 1st of July for some of the battalions that were heavily engaged. So the Leeds Pals, some of the stories we've just uh, learnt from the previous cemetery, uh, 528 casualties, which is, if just think about that, that a, a battalion in attack is between six, seven, possibly 800, but I think more likely to be nearest between six and 700 men in an attack, and they're having 528 of them became casualties. It's just extraordinary. Also, the 16th West Yorks following them up, uh, the Bradford Pals, 515 casualties um, uh, as, uh, as well. So so you have to ask yourself, well, why isn't this little cemetery full uh, of the remains of, uh, of the men that fought and died here? And that's because a lot of them are, are still on the battlefield, uh, as always, and, and a lot are, are buried elsewhere, um, uh, considerable numbers as unknown soldiers. So, um, so it's, but it's a beautiful little cemetery and, uh, and I suppose the, all of these cemeteries are small and they are the true battlefield cemeteries. So, so yeah, a, a great place to start. And we are in no man's land. Um, the rising ground behind the cemetery is the rising ground to Sarah, which is, is where they were attacking. I'd be interested to see, Pete, if there are any notes ever left as to, why they chose to create cemeteries where they did. Because this is interesting. There's a couple of very bit large cemeteries very near to here where a lot of bodies were brought in. But also right on the battlefield, there's three or four or five gorgeous little battlefield cemeteries. And yeah. I, I, you just wonder what the, um, what the philosophy was as to, as to what cemeteries would be created and where men would be buried. Well, after you see, after the war, the the Commonwealth War Graves created the maps of effort uh, for that ab- absolute reason. They were looking at where small groupings were, where individuals were buried, and the maps of effort gave them that idea of where they needed to create cemeteries. But that's in 19, uh, 1918, 1919. and of course, this uh, this cemetery was created in in nineteen seventeen. So I think it just is about. We need somewhere to bury them. There may have been a small shell hole here to start off with. It may just be that that it was. This is where the the uh, there was a great concentration of bodies here. So this is where we're going to we're going to bury them. And I think it's probably that. It's okay, guys. We can dig here. The the ground's a bit soft. Let's let's start digging graves here. Um, and that's what I think in in most cases uh, the original battlefield cemeteries because the Germans are no longer anywhere near here. So there is safety. Um, but still, it's a, it's an effort, uh, and remember, they're still fighting. They're needed at the front line. We haven't got enough people to spend hours combing the ground and picking everybody up, and so it's just a case of uh, of burying those that they could immediately see uh, in in small groupings. So I think that's the reason why this cemetery is is where it is. They're so gorgeous. These cemeteries, they're some of the most beautiful on the Somme. These these little these little battlefield cemeteries. And yet, just the horror that created them—it's it, we we can't make that leap of imagination to understand what it was like before these cemeteries were there. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think the because this is such a well-known location, such a well-known place, there are lots and lots of books. And perhaps when we do the notes for this and put them onto the Facebook page that I might do a few suggestions as as to books to, to read on this one, because there are there are a lot of books you can read and you really get a feel from some of them of the the horror of what went on on that morning. Uh, uh, bright sum, summer's morning, 7.30 in the morning, just just appalling. Um. So let's let's carry on because what we're, we're aiming to do is to get to the Sheffield Memorial Park, and that is now in front of us. As we follow the track down, we can actually see a, a, a copse, a, a wood in front of us. Now, at one time, this is where we attacked from. These little woods that we can see as we're walking towards them, and they're known as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's running from left to right as we're as we're approaching the, the woods, and we're kind of approaching, I suppose, from a German perspective, looking towards. Uh, the uh, the cops um they've they've all amalgamated matthew which was the first one on the left hand side as we're looking at them has gone that was never replanted it was plowed in after the war they didn't they didn't do anything with it mark luke and john these three little uh, uh, small copses have grown together they've, uh, the trees have linked them together and so it's now just one long thin wood that really follows the front line it follows the front line and the uh, and the attack trenches um but it's really mark cops uh, which is the one that was actually uh, uh, bought or presented to i'm not quite sure uh, whether it was in these cases it's quite difficult to kind of work out where these given where these presented where these bought but however uh, mark cops will be become the the site of sheffield memorial park 
and it will be inaugurated on the 21st of May 1921. Now, they had to do these things quickly, I suppose, because if they didn't, then they would have lost the landscape. It would have been replowed and levelled or whatever. Uh, here, it's uh, it's not, as we, as we will see when we, when we enter the site. So we're walking uh, towards it. Um, you then run down the, uh, the the wood is on your left hand side. We just turn right as we hit the wood and follow the edge of the wood. Um, and on our left hand side, before we get to the gate, you can see the Accrington Pals Memorial, and we're going to talk about that when we get into the site. Uh, up to the uh, the gates, and the gates have uh, pillars on each side. Nice wooden gate. And it says on the pillars, Sheffield Memorial, 1914-1918. So that tells you it's doing something else. It's not just commemorating um, uh, the men from Sheffield who fought and died here in on the 1st of July. It is also being used as a memorial to to Sheffield and its 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 efforts on the uh, uh, during the Great War. And so people often forget that this is not just about uh, the 1st of July. So through the wooden gates, um, we can see the memorial pavilion uh, in front of us, which looks like an, just an archway in the middle of the site. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to go to the left and we're going to go and look at the uh, the Accrington uh, Pals Memorial, um, which is a, an interesting memorial. I don't, I don't know. What, what do you think of it, Matt, when you look at the Accrington Pals Memorial? I think um, I'm saying this to be kind, but I think people would overlook that it's a memorial <laughs> unless they saw yeah. there was a plaque on the front of it. Yeah, it's it's a it's an odd an odd thing, and uh, and I had to have a th- think about it for quite some time. Now, to start off with, I, I was aware that it's made from uh, a, a red a reddish brick, which is quite um, different, really. I suppose it's a very strong red reddish brick, uh, and it's an Accrington brick, so it's a, a brick that was made in Accrington. And then it looks like a half pulled down wall, which makes it quite unusual. It looks like a, a, a wall that's kind of in a little bit of a Z, uh, and the top of it's all jaggedy and doesn't look like it's finished. Um, but it's supposed to represent the back-to-back houses that a lot of these guys came from. So they came from these little woolen uh, t- uh, towns, or the mills, the black satanic mills of the uh, of the northwest in this case. And um, so it's... Uh, that's what it's representing, these these back-to-back houses that the men came from. It's made out of the bricks that their houses were built from. So, actually, over the years, it, I've, it's actually grown on me, I have to say. Um, and it commemorates uh, the Accrington uh, uh, Pals. There's also now a new little memorial alongside of it that we can see um, to the Y Company and Z Company of the Accrington Pals. And Y Company were made up of men from Chorley, another town in the same area, and Z Company from Burnley, another small town. So these are the towns of the northwest. Uh, uh, this is the area r- around uh, Manchester. Uh, and um, uh, so it's uh, to me, it's a really, really moving, uh, moving uh, place. Uh, um, so t- should say to, for those that are listening and know that area that Manchester, round Manchester, is a very broad brush, especially for gives you an idea for Australians who perhaps don't know the area that I'm talking about. So, uh, but people will be horrified that I'm saying around Manchester. Um, I love the uh, the inscription on the the two the Y Company and Z Company uh, panels, and it says, "Where larks sing and poppies grow, they sleep in peace forevermore." Uh, a very moving little sentiment, I think, on on that uh, that memorial. Um, new memorials have appeared over the years, and very close to it, we have another memorial, and this is to the uh, the York and Lanks, the Barnsley Pals, thirteen uh, and fourteenth battalions involved, and that's black granite with a, a marble plaque on the fr- uh, front, with emblazoned with the city 
uh, crest and the regimental uh, badges, um, and that was that was put up in 1998. Uh, so we've had this expansion from just being a site commemorating uh, Sheffield. It's commemorating all of the pals that actually uh, attacked uh, attacked here. Um, so let's uh, we've had a look at those those memorials, and so we're going to walk back uh, to where the gate is, and then turn to face the German line. So we're turning back uh, and looking onto the track that we've come from through the gate and up uh, onto the German front line. And what we can see in front of us, and most people don't notice it straight away, is this ditch. So this ditch on the edge of the site that's running parallel with the road alongside the road. Well, that's their attack trenches. That is literally the attack trenches uh, that they uh, that they literally uh, uh, attacked uh, from. Um, and oddly, so there is just something to be aware of here, that even though we're in Sheffield uh, Memorial Park, and you would imagine this is where the Sheffield battalions attack from, it isn't. This is the 11th uh, East Lanks, so the Accrington Pals, this was actually their attack trenches. Um, the Sheffield trenches are to the left, so if we're looking towards the German lines, so looking up the slope towards uh, then uh, the Sheffields are attacking just to the left uh, of, of this position. So the attack trenches by the gateway, they are the Accrington Pals, the 11th East Lanks attack positions. It's pretty so extraordinary, it, it, isn't it, Pete? Just uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a yeah. little ditch. It's it's you know it's it's much shallower than it was, but this is the trench that they climbed out of. Just as an aside, before we get into it, I've I've heard arguments about whether this was the support trench or the front line trench. Um, can I confirm that as of last week, when I was updating my book, Walking with the Anzacs, and I had all my trench maps out and overlays over modern maps, I can 100% confirm this is the frontline trench. It was not a support yeah, trench. Definitely. This this was the frontline trench from which they advanced. So I don't, I don't know why that's become confused over the years, but I've heard arguments about, no, no, this was a support trench. The frontline trench was further on. None of that is true. This is the frontline no. trench. Interestingly, there is a there is a something that was going on that was quite interesting here. There were several saps running out from this front line trench, taking men to in, into no man's land. So they had the opportunity to use the uh, the saps to put uh, to push out men in in no man's land. But after having dug the saps out into no man's land, and for the, for those of the, the uninitiated, a sap is a trench that runs towards your enemy. So uh, a, a sap is running out from your front line trenches, and very often used for taking men. In men into no man's land in this case they had an idea to run the men along the saps and then spread out as they came out of the saps the problem with that is everybody's coming out the same area so it was decided not to do that in the end even though they'd created them um so uh, a, a sap something that runs towards your enemy a russian sap is one that's got head cover so in other words it's just below the ground it's camouflaged so a russian sap is camouflaged on the top um, but these were saps that were pushed out into no man's land um the uh, the reserve trenches are down actually in the bottom and we're on the slope it's a, it's quite a steep slope so we're going to turn round again now uh, and face back into the memorial uh, park and we're going to walk towards the uh, this arch in the middle which actually is the memorial that commemorates the Sheffield Pals and we're going to walk past that and we're going to walk down into the bottom of the of the of the valley um, and these are where the reserve trenches these are were feeding up into the front line and in fact the next waves attack from the reserve trenches because the front line trenches were had absolutely take a hurricane bombardment and were in a terrible state uh, and quite often it's one of the reasons why people look at those front line trenches and think oh well they're not much not really like a trench it's just like a very very shallow ditch and that's because they'd fairly much been filled in by shell fire 
during that fighting and, and obviously in subsequent fighting and then uh, with over the uh, over the period of time they have softened with uh, uh, the leaves from the trees etc uh, it's uh, it's softened them into a state now where they remain so we walk through this archway, the Sheffield Park Memorial, and there's a, an enormous great crater, a big shell hole uh, uh, just behind that. And I'm sure it's you, you'll remember it, Matt. It's quite a quite an exceptional hole that's uh, that's just it, behind. Is it a me. shell hole? That's a great question because it must have been I a hell of a uh, shell yeah. that created that. <laughs> Right. Well, I think we, if I remember right, I think we've stood there discussing it, whether it was yeah. a shell or whether it's, uh, it's, it doesn't like a mine detonation. And I've never read anything about a mine going off here. Or is it, is it post war? Was it, cause, uh, some of the great craters that we see occasionally behind our lines were created in the detonation of live munitions after the war. So did they pile in some munitions there and detonate it? I don't know, but it is a, a rather spectacular crater. Um, and you can see the trenches. You can actually see some of the reserve trenches there. Uh, as well zigzagging uh, through the, the landscape and down into the um, into the uh, towards railway hollow cemetery and that's where we're heading next just across the the valley uh, the far edge so we've left the wood and uh, and there's another cemetery there and again it's uh, it was by five core they uh, created uh, this cemetery and in fact it was called five core cemetery number three at one time now known as railway hollow cemetery 107 burials, uh, 65 uh, identified, and uh, one Frenchman. Now, last-minute research uh, uh, yesterday evening, and I noticed that somebody had put two Frenchmen. So now I'm not sure whether it's one or two Frenchmen buried in there. But let's put it this way. A number of Frenchmen are buried in <laughs> Railway Hollow Cemetery. Uh, a good uh, example well. of combined arms as well. We shouldn't forget the French yeah. during the Battle no, of the Somme. Indi- uh, indeed not. And, and um, nearly everybody here... Uh, buried in this cemetery is from the 1st of July or the 13th of November. So those two great attacks that took place here, neither of them successful. That's uh, 107 burials, 65 identified, of which um, they are either 1st of July or 13th of November, and a few exceptions, but that's the major dates. They are stunning little cemeteries, aren't they, Pete? Uh, I mean, I know I've said it before, but they're just... It, 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 there's just something about this area again when you go from this you stand in that frontline trench and it's hard for the emotion not to wash over you when you you know you're standing in that trench you see the memorials to all these poor boys from from the north of england and then you go and see these cemeteries which are scenes of just such horror and sadness <coughs> and yet they're today so beautiful and so so well maintained and 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 just such lovely places to stand it's quite a peaceful spot railway hollow and it's a, it's a contrast to 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 what created it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think the whole site here is is a beautiful area, and especially when it's quiet, it's one of those. Uh, if you can, if you happen to hit it when there's nobody else there, it is very popular. I should say this: uh, the whole area, for very obvious reasons, is very popular with students. Uh, the uh, coachloads of uh, of school children and students from Britain. It's on the national curriculum still, so they do come here in quite large numbers. Um, and I, I, it's nice to see them as well. So you've got this double kind of, I suppose, double thought process. You know, when you see them coming, your kind of heart sinks because you wanted it quiet for yourself. But it's also quite nice to listen to some of their comments and, and what they're doing when they're here. But I do particularly like coming here in the evening, especially a summer's evening when it's quiet uh, and the birds are just uh, singing and they're starting to roost in the wood. Um, the sun's going down and you can walk up to as we're going to in a minute to Queen's Cemetery um, and, and Queen's Cemetery is truly in the middle of, uh, of no man's land it's uh, a very moving location one of one of uh, got to say one of my um, 
uh, one of the cemeteries that I really enjoy going to because I just find it so moving. And uh, you can sit, there's a seat there, and you can sit in the seat in Queen Cemetery and uh, and sit back, uh, facing, you're facing the woods, so you're looking down to uh, to the copses. Um, and, and, and I try not to imagine. It's one of those places where you don't need to imagine what it was like here. You really do get the feel of what it was like. So I just like knowing that, you know, just like visiting the guys that are buried in the cemetery. So that's what we'll do. We're going to leave, uh, leave the, um, the, the cops now. We're going to leave the Sheffield Memorial Park out through that wooden gate again in between the two pillars. And almost directly opposite is, uh, remember these are ploughed fields. These are farmer's fields. There's crops growing depending on what time of the year you come and what's in here. You could be walking through a wheat field. You could be walking through a potato field or a sugar beet field. It's going to be one or the other. Uh, and, um, out or, or even canola sometimes, uh, and out towards the, uh, uh, this Queen's Cemetery, long thin uh, uh, track, takes you up to a, 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 a multi-layered cemetery. It's one of my favourites, just because I like the design of it. But what I should have mentioned about these cemeteries, there's, there's something that catches people unaware. These are all touching headstones in these cemeteries. Um, and when you look carefully in the Queen's Cemetery, you'll see that there are many double burials. So there's more than one name on a headstone, and they're all touching and what really dawns on you very quickly is that these cannot be directly above the bodies because if you've got multiple burials uh, on the headstones and you've the, and you then got touching headstones and um, just as a, a, a rough kind of uh, guide, touching headstones means not directly beneath. So you realise that what a lot of these cemeteries are are actually their their trench burials at the best, and possibly in some cases they are are are, are um, communal cemeteries. So so mass graves really affect effectively. So I, I just find it very moving when you see these names, and they are the names of the north of England uh, over and over. So that in this uh, in Queen Cemetery, uh, again it was called uh, Five Course Cemetery Number Four. Three hundred graves, all, all touching. Uh, as I say, many with double burials. Um, Fifty-five of them are named Accrington Pals, and thirty-three of them are named Sheffield Pals. There are also some Hull Pals in here as well. So this is one of the places I like going because some of my home city men are buried uh, buried in here as well and again it's full of stories but there's always one that I go to so I'm going to tell a little personal story again um, one of my great collecting uh, I suppose of Great War collecting themes are postcards photographic postcards of the Great War uh, and many years ago I bought a, a rather large collection of Leeds uh, pals uh, postcards unknown didn't know who who was in the photographs I could see one chap being photographed over and over again and many months later, in a, another little uh, um, uh, fair, military fair, in fact, it was an ephemera fair. They were selling paperwork and documents and postcards and photographs. And I found some photograph albums. I opened them up and there he was. I recognized him straight away. It was the same guy. These were his photo albums. And I'd bought his postcard collection some months before. And we get a name this time. And uh, so I now have a, a name for him. Um, it's called Panther. Um, but what was interesting is uh, he's one of the earlier people enlisting in the in the fifteenth uh, West Yorkshires, the Leeds Pals, and there's, he's got name he's named everybody. And one of the guys that's in one of the photographs uh, is um, uh, is uh, Lieutenant Stanley Bickersteth uh, from a very well-heeled family in, in Leeds, and in fact his father 
Dr. Bickerseth was the vicar of Leeds and he'd been on the recruiting committee. So he'd been on the, the recruiting committee raising the, uh, the 15th Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment, the Leeds Pals, of which his son uh, had, had enlisted and sadly would lose his life on the, uh, on the 1st of July. So I often wonder how he felt about that, being involved in the, uh, in the raising and the, I suspect he felt very proud. Um, but his son lies here in the in the cemetery here. Uh, he will uh, he will go on. Uh, his father, Doctor Biggestest, will go on to become the Canon of Canterbury and chaplain to the king uh, later on. And in fact, I I picked up his signature many years ago and added his signature on another postcard to the, to the little collection that I I have. Um, so I always go and, uh, and go and see um, Lieutenant Stanley Biggestest uh, where he's uh, he's buried in this cemetery. Um, another of the guys that I tend to to visit. I don't just visit the officers. It's just that there's more information on the officers, and uh, you, sometimes it's because of you know they were leading from the front as these men did. Captain Arnold uh, Bannatyne Tuff, um, great great name. He was with the Accringtons in the in the first wave, uh, and they went over early at seven twenty, <clears throat> and he was wounded. Um, and about 100 metres out in uh, in no man's land. And as the rest of his men, his men attacked at 7.30, uh, he stood up again and encouraged them on, waving his men forward as uh, and he was uh, he was hit and, and killed. Um, and so he was a captain, and he was only aged 26. Uh, 26, and I always nearly got... I feel myself getting a bit emotional then. Uh, a, lo- a loving... No, sorry, a loved and loving son and brother is his epitaph on his uh, on his headstone. And you just realise these are such young men, 26 years old, captain, trying to lead his men from the front um, and losing his life on the 1st uh, of July. Um, so I often sit here on this on this seat here and the walls are built in the way and the steps that you can actually sit and relax on, on the steps uh, anyway. And so if you've got a bigger group, there's always places for you to sit uh, sit down and talk about uh, many of the men that are here. There are stories connected with uh, a heck of a lot of the guys that are, are buried in this in this cemetery. I'm just going to go off on a quick tangent, just to say, from a from a point of view of a of a an Antipodean point of view, from this cemetery, you can look up to the hillside opposite, and you can see the Signy Farm uh, can be seen from here. And for anybody that uh, is interested in the New Zealanders and the fighting of the New Zealanders in 1918, that's one of their crucial battlefields of of 1918. So you can see here that we we never really leave the battlefield throughout the the Great War. It's never far away from here, and we'll cross over this area again in 1918. It's a wonderful spot, Pete. I'm not surprised that it's one of your favourites to sit there and look out on the battlefield. And the thing that always strikes me when I've been here is, I mean, it's coincidental, but as you walk along that path to Queen's Cemetery in the middle of the field, you are walking in the footsteps of the men who now lie in the cemetery because you're crossing no man's land. The path leads directly from the British front line into no man's land towards the German front line. And I think the German front line is approximately... The same distance into the field again as the as the sort of the, the the path that leads to the cemetery, and so as you walk that path, you can't help but look to your left and right and think, "I'm walking with the ghosts of the men that you know they were being hit by the time they got to where I'm standing." And then, of course, you come to the cemetery where many of them lie. So it's it's a the, the ghosts walk beside you in in this area, Pete. They, they do indeed, and and that's exactly it, Matt. I don't think I I didn't really explain that, and that was that was really kind of get, gives you that feeling of why it is so moving to be there because to get there you have actually walked in, in their footsteps, and 
Yeah, it's so it's uh, yeah one of one of my favourite to contemplate the battlefield from, and I say try and go in an evening when it's quiet, and uh, yeah, you'll you'll certainly get that 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 feel of of peace there. But it certainly wasn't a peaceful place on the first of, of July that morning. Last time I was there a few so, years ago, I found um, found some human remains just off the path leading to the cemetery as yeah. well in the ploughed field, just some small bones, yeah. probably from a hand or a, yeah, just awful, but just found them there yeah. and so covered them over again. It's um, yeah, there's so many of those men still lie there beneath that ploughed field. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to carry on back and so we'll walk back down towards uh, Sheffield Memorial Park again, back onto the track, and we're going to turn right this time and head along a newly paved road. Now, when this was pa- first paved, I thought, oh, goody, that's good. We can drive in from the other side of the of the site uh, and, um, uh, and get to the Sheffield Park. It'll save me all that time of walking. But no, it's not for vehicles. It's, uh, well, it's for farm vehicles. It's for us to walk along. Um, and so we're going to walk along uh, along that. There are some new benches there as well, so we can uh, we can uh, s- uh, sit down on our route. And one of those benches is just outside the final cemetery that we're going to go to today, and that's Luke uh, Cops Cemetery. That gives you a clue. So we're at the looking uh, again towards the German lines. We're on the extreme left of uh, of these copses. Um, so Luke Cops Cemetery. Now, this is a very strangely laid out cemetery. You don't, there aren't that many like this because the graves are staggered and overlapping. So it's got a very strange layout. So only 72 buried here and uh, 44 of the 72 are, are identified um, and 14 are from the Sheffield City uh, Battalion. Um, there's also, uh, in fact, the 44 that are identified are interesting. Is 14 from the Sheffield City Battalion and the other 30 are from the 13th of November. So they are from the later the later fighting. So it's a mix. But you can tell it's created together because they're intermingled from those two dates and these overlapping headstones. Uh, tell you exactly again what it is. It's a trench burial. This is most definitely a trench burial where they buried them. Um, and uh, a very small cemetery, but one equally moving. And, and before there was no way you could sit or you just had to walk past it. So probably one of the least visited of the group of cemeteries here. But now we've got a seat outside that we can sit on. And these are new memorial seats. Now, I tried online to discover when they were when they were inaugurated i couldn't find it uh, yesterday when i was uh, looking for it but one of the one of the interesting aspects is i, I think they were put in during covid uh, because before covid i don't remember them being there and certainly post covid when i went on one of my first walks on the battlefield in fact it was towards the end of covid when we were still not working but we uh, last could move around we went for a walk there and there were these benches that were put up and they've been beautifully carved with regimental badges uh, and within them, lovely benches, um, but just appeared. So I'm sure they must have put up with some some kind of pomp and ceremony when they were put in. Um, uh, and they're put in by, I think, gr- uh, people that have raised them back in the UK for them, uh, supporters of the of the PALS battalions. But I couldn't actually find the exact date of when they went in. But they're great anyway. So you can walk along this this path now, past Luke uh, Cops Cemetery, go and have a, a, a have a look at the graves in there. And then you can carry on and following this path. It's quite a long walk. You'll actually walk again in, uh, off off the 1st of July battlefields. Um, to the back of the town, so you're going behind the German line, so the back of Sir, so you can hit a, hit a T-junction, turn right, and it takes you into the village itself. And a lot of people don't bother going to have a look at the village. It's a very small village. I mean, I suspect it's uh, less than 100 people living there. It's, I don't think it's many uh, people. 
But the reason we've come this way is because in coming this way, we're going to walk past what is very unusual, which is uh, the city memorial. So this is the, the, the first memorial that was put up here, and it was to um, from the city of Sheffield. And Sheffield twinned itself with Sir because of its terrible losses here. It also twinned itself with Bapome, my hometown. So right on the other side of the battlefield, um, we have Bapome. Uh, Sheffield twinned itself with Bapome as well. And the idea being with these in, in these twinning associations that uh, uh, Sheffield would have helped with the rebuilding. Sadly, the depression hit and not a not a lot of money was forthcoming, and in fact, it kind of died a slow death. Really, the twinning associations, but Sheffield is 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 twinned with Sir, as you as you expect, and they decided to put up a memorial uh, to the city battalion and to the city in the main street, and the the badge on it is the badge of the city of Sheffield. Um, I have read that it's where bodies were found in this area. Well, of course, bodies were found in this area. They they may have been found in the in the town itself, but not many. I don't think very many uh, Sheffield men got actually into Sarah itself. Um, during the uh, the 90th anniversary, it was actually reinaugurated. It was getting a bit uh, a, a bit run down, so it was uh, it was renovated and uh, reinaugurated on the 1st of July uh, in 2006. And well worth going to have a look at. It's an obelisk, but it's a, a stumpy obelisk. And have a look online. I may even find a picture. We'll post it on the uh, on the Facebook page. But well worth going up to have a look at the uh, Sheffield City Memorial. I've never actually been there, Pete. I haven't. Uh, I don't think I've even been into the village. It's been a while since I've been to this area, and there were there weren't convenient paths that led directly from the from the cemeteries up into the town. So I, I, I have not seen it. I will add it to my list definitely for next time I'm over there. Yeah, to be truthful, most people drive up there to go and have a look at it. And actually, I, I went not that long ago, and it's actually still quite difficult to park. There's no real parking place. You have to kind of park on the uh, on half on the road, half off the road. But it's it's well worth going to have a look at. Uh, and I'm interested in it because it's it's one of only a few city memorials that commemorate really the men of of, of Sheffield. And because we have there is a Hull uh, Pals Memorial as well, commemorating the city of Hull and the Pals as a place called Oppie Wood. In fact, uh, if you look back on the podcast, I think we did the podcast. Podcast, uh, we did indeed. Rightly, on, we did indeed. Uh, on the, whole, the whole pals at Oppiewood. Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah, so they have their own memorial as well. So that's why I quite like going to ha- have a look at this one. So then we've got a bit of a walk down the hill again and heading back towards where we started. Um, so heading back to uh, Say Road uh, number one. And um, the reason why we're going there is a because we parked our vehicle there. But the final kind of port of call is to go beyond our vehicle just slightly. Uh, and go and have a look at uh, the uh, Sir French War Cemetery, which is there now, which, when I first came here, was in a fairly terrible state. Uh, the crosses of the uh, French have white crosses. They've got concrete cancer, so the metal bars were sticking through. A lot of the name tags had dropped off the graves. There was no names on them. Hedges were overgrown. Uh, overgrown. The memorial at the top of the uh, of a gentle slope was was very, very crumbly. I just had a very sad feel about it. Well, now many years ago, they just took the whole lot down, rebuilt it. Uh, it's beautiful now. It's a it's a lovely uh, cemetery. And again, for the podcast, I was doing a little bit of research, and and that's when I realised that uh, it was only handed over to the French in 1933. Prior to that, even though it's a French cemetery, because we'd gathered in the French dead and it was seen as uh, something that we'd done, we looked after it. So it was one that was originally looked after by the uh, Commonwealth War Graves or Imperial War Graves as it was, but eventually handed over to the French in 1933 and, and now well worth going to uh, to have a, have a look at. 
It's interesting that, Pete, isn't it, the idea that the French cemetery would become run down because my experience is that the French people, and I don't say this disrespectfully, I can understand why, but they're far less interested in cemeteries from the First World War than we on the British side are. And I think simply because there's just so many of them. The French lost so many men. Yeah. And, you know, in, in numerous wars, you know, French, French people have been dying in their, in the fields of France for so long yeah. that I, I just think there's a, there's a little bit of apathy to the First World War. Um, that, you know, the Second World War casts a long shadow in France. Uh, so there does seem to be a little bit of apathy from French people to going and, 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 and visiting these cemeteries. And I can understand why. I think it's improved over the years, you know, since I've been here, there's definitely more of an interest than, than I remember. And certainly if you go into any news agents and look at the number of uh, magazines that are, uh, that are basically, um, uh, designed to, uh, to, to attract the attention of those that are interested in warfare and especially the, the First World War. But they are a little bit armchair historians. They don't feel it necessary to go out and visit the graves and the battlefields. Um, I think there's a sadder aspect in this area. There are an awful lot of private memorials to Frenchmen that died uh, during the, the fighting of the of the Somme of 1915, uh, and um, we have them all over this area, and they they are not looked after at all. And in fact, they're not really recorded anywhere. And it's one of my potential books I've had in my head for years is recording all the private French memorials to individuals who fought and died, and in some cases are buried beneath the crosses. In other cases. Cases, they're just memorial crosses, um, and they're scattered everywhere, all over the, the, the this area, uh, and they're not looked after at all. And some of them have actually been very badly damaged by tractors over the years. And uh, in fact, in one case, it's gone; it's it's now gone. Um, so uh, they need to be looked after, and I would like to see those being revered and looked after and cared for. Um, but uh, but sadly, not at, not at the moment. It's, um, again, that great irony. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast, Pete, is that, that obviously men came from all over France to fight and defend France, and this is the battlefield area, so this is where they fought. Um, but then you think about the blokes who were from this area, you know, those memorials to men. You know, we yeah. see them in the little towns where they got the memorials to the men from the town who went off and fought. Um, you know, to, to be... <laughs> When, I, when you see private memorials, when you see little town memorials, I know this isn't quite the same thing, but I, it just always strikes me that imagine what it must have meant to those men and their, their families yeah. to know that these men were fighting in a different sector to try and defend France, and yet their family was caught up in the war. Their village, where they yeah. were from, was right in the front line and potentially destroyed. It's just a, a whole level of of emotion and and, and horror yeah. that we don't, as, as Australians and British people, coming over to fight. Um, didn't really share. But that must have been shocking for the for the men in the front line to know to to be from Pozigare or Serre or yeah, or Tiepal yeah, and exactly. hear that and hear the news that these towns were in the thick of the fighting and to wonder what was yeah. happening to your family back there. Horrific stuff. Uh, I, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, there is definitely the French. Uh, they don't spend time on the battlefield. At, uh, it's you don't see them at all, uh, and yet and yet they are interested. I think it very much is is highlighted just a hundred yards up the road from where I am. We have a rather attractive nineteen kind of late twenties, early thirties style memorial to a French territorial division who fought here in nineteen fourteen to try and defend this area. It's a beautiful memorial. It's it's well cared for. It's got a hedge round it. The, it's looked after by the commune, by my village. Have I ever seen anybody looking at it at all? Never. 
it, it, it's just ignored by us because it's French and we are here to look at the tanks of flares and you know, what went on, the Australians fighting here. Nobody ever goes to look at this French memorial. <laughs> the French don't go to look at it. The only time it gets a visitor is on the 11th of November uh, on Remembrance Day. Um, then we all parade, or those that are parading in the village uh, and uh, and going to the war memorials, we go to all of them. So we go to the British 41st Divisional Memorial, we go to the town little village memorial, and then we go up to the French memorial. And we go from one end of the town to the other to look at all the memorials within the town. So it isn't forgotten, but it's not visited other than on the 11th of, of November. I've never seen anybody standing looking at it at all. Um, well, so hopefully podcasts like all- this one, hopefully podcasts like this one can um, yeah. start to bring about a bit of change, Pete. I mean, if, if you are listening yeah. to this and you find yourself on the battlefields and you see a French memorial, do yourself the honour of going and checking it out. I mean, some of the ones in yeah. Champagne, for example, there are incredible yeah. French memorials in that region. Yeah. Stunning, and I have never seen another person there when I've gone to check them out. They're yeah. absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and then <clears throat> so final port of call for this uh, this little walk. We're going to cross the road, having looked at the uh, French uh, War Cemetery, and there's a memorial chapel opposite. It's not been renovated yet. It's been down for being renovated for years and years, and there's all sorts of talk that it was going to be renovated, but it's not renovated. It's never open, but it's a memorial chapel that literally faces the cemetery. Um, the, the only thing uh, to comment upon it is that there is an inscription that commemorates both the German and the French fighting here, which is unusual for the for the French to commemorate the Germans as well. But there is a uh, there is an inscription in the doorway that commemorates both. Um, and then the, the final uh, line that I like is "With us, the memory to them, the immortality." Um, which is in, inscribed there as uh, as well. But I'd love to see it opened up and actually and and used for something other than just a, a building, um, an empty building. But it's um, uh, yeah, it's a, a little memorial chapel. It's a lovely line, Pete, and I think it um, sums up what we've done here very well: the immortality of these men who still lie there. Some of them in marked graves in cemeteries. Many of them, sadly, still beneath the fields and uh, will probably never be recovered. Um, but just a, a very special spot on the battlefield, a place I love coming to, and um, it's been really wonderful, Pete, to walk it in this virtual sense with you today. Yeah, good. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to go back. I've, having uh, done a little bit of research and not been for a few months, I think it's time for me to revisit. Well, thank you very much, Pete, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Yep, great, Matt. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.